Welcome back to the Sip and Feast podcast. Today we're talking how to conquer your cooking fears. I did not come up with it. Tara, my better half, you did. Probably because I have more cooking fears than you do, since I'm a less experienced cook than you are. Well, that might be so, but you do come up with really good ideas, and this is a good. This is going to be a good one to dissect. Before we get into that, let's talk about food news very quickly. Okay, so this is actually an exciting week in the world of food or exciting two weeks because today the day that we're recording this is august 24th uh today marks the first day of the minnesota state fair also known as the great minnesota get together so i think most of our listeners probably know we lived in minnesota for three years um during that time i would always hear people talk about the state fair how awesome the food is i didn't really get it until In 2017, we went to the fair for the first time, and my mind was blown by the amount of food, the variety of food, how incredible it was. My experience with fairs was limited to like the Nassau County Fair that was in the Coliseum parking lot, and the food was disgusting. Like it was never good. So I just always had this negative connotation or state fairs always had like a negative thing in my in my mind. So when we went to the Minnesota State Fair, like I said, I was blown away by by all the food. So I thought it would be fun if maybe we talked about some of the new foods that are debuting for this year's state fair. And right away, I just want to tell you, the Minnesota State Fair is the largest fair in the country by, I think, leaps and bounds. It's I know that's kind of the claim to fame there. I will just correct you, Tara. There are some good little fairs, like, you know, maybe call it a feast to San Gennaro and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's nothing that compares to the size and scope of the Minnesota State Fair. Some of the things that I thought sounded really cool, these are new for this year, is a bacon-wrapped waffle dog, and that's from Nordic Waffles. So it's like a waffle taco that's filled with a hot dog, cheddar cheese, pickle slices, and crispy onions. Some of the other ones, which you'll notice, pickles seem to be like the dominant theme of the Minnesota State Fair. Yeah, There's lots of different ways to eat pickles. One of them is pickle fries from Mike's Hamburger. Another one is Miami Mango Pickles by Soul Bowl. It's dill pickles that are infused with a Miami Mango Punch. Um, This one I thought sounded really interesting because it involves lutefisk, which is a, a type of fish that we never ate, but it's something that um, I believe is Scandinavian. So it's being that Minnesota has a large Scandinavian population or Scandinavian American population, they eat lutefisk there. Um, so this is a crispy lutefisk steam bun from Shanghai Henry's, and it's a steamed bun, like a lotus bun from an uh, Asian restaurant that's filled with cabbage, carrots, yum yum sauce, and lutefisk that's topped with hoisin and sesame seeds. So we never ate lutefisk. I never had a desire to, especially after seeing Andrew Zimmern on Bizarre Foods. He had eaten it once. It just didn't sound appetizing to me. Everybody I met, everybody in Minnesota who, when we had a conversation about lutefisk, right? That's how they Mm -hmm. say lutefisk. Every single one said, do not eat it. It's horrible. (laughs) I'm forced to eat it like one time a year. I think it's like a Christmas thing. Yeah. Yeah. So would you eat these? I would eat these crispy lutefisk steam buns. They sound good. Yeah, I don't know. Once I hear yum yum sauce, I start to uh, tune out. Yum yum sauce I associate with really bad hibachi places. I like hibachi. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I like a lot you of You don't food. like having someone throw a shrimp into your mouth while you catch I, it? I, you know, uh, you're like a seal. 
Yeah. You know, you're like, you're like a seal going, yeah, like, you're throw the shrimp into my barking mouth. Barking for your food. Yeah. Okay. So some of the other things that I thought sounded interesting um, was they have a Bira Misu, which is a tiramisu flavored beer that's got like coffee, chocolate, and vanilla and a cocoa banana, like chocolate banana ale. So I thought that sounded good. Really quick, you know, some of our favorites that we had when we were there in 2017, we had a pickle beer, which was really good. Overlaying the picture of that right now. Yeah. Where I had it in my hand. A pickle beer and a bacon beer. Yeah. Those were really good. I'm much better looking than the other guy in that picture, by the way. (laughs) The best turkey sandwich I ever had in my life I had at the Minnesota State Fair at Turkey to Go. Do you remember that thing? We were psyching ourselves up and we needed a plan of action because there's so many places to eat Mm -hmm. and everybody without fail, they mentioned a few other places, but they always mentioned that turkey place and it sounded so basic and boring Mm -hmm. and they were all just adamant about trying it. You'll love it. And they were right. It's an amazing turkey sandwich on white bread with gravy wrapped in foil, something like your mother would give you when you went to school and it would be horrible when you got to lunch and all the kids would make fun of you. But it, was but so it wasn't good. horrible. It was amazing. It really was. Yeah. And then there were, you know, the cheese curds, the cream cheese stuffed pickle that's deep fried. And there were like 400 things. vendors. Uh, yeah. If you do make it out there, and I would assume if you live in Wisconsin, if you live in the Dakotas, if you live in Iowa, you probably have gone there multiple times in the last few years, just because that's how important that fair is. So you probably know the vendors better than me. Uh, If you're a little bit further away and you're going there for the first time, do yourself a favor and get the cheese curds. The cheese curds there at the different places where they fry them for you hot, they serve them to you. They're a million times better than the cheese curds that are sold in, say, Culver's. Culver's is uh, kind of a regional burger place that does have great burgers, but their curds, cheese curds were a little lacking. So cheese curds is probably my favorite thing to get at the fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to get back there at some point. That is the reason why I'm going to go back to the state <laughs> is for the fair. <laughs> Truly, that's that's the reason. Yeah, that and the that Mexican place that we liked. Oh, yeah, there was this, there was this really good Mexican place, a uh, little in, in, in like a strip mall in a town called Eden Prairie. And these towns, a lot of you probably know because Eden Prairie, we were from, we, we lived in Minnetonka for three years. These are towns that have a lot of big companies for whatever reason. And Eden Prairie has a lot of, I think they have like multiple companies that are in in the, uh, you know, Fortune 500. So uh, you probably will recognize the name. It's like, oh. it's like a city of like 50,000 people. So yeah. 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 And the Mexican place was Aurelia's. Aurelia's. And it, it had this so good. smothered green chili taco that was just out of this world out of this world. All right, let's move on. So the next item in food news, which is kind of disgusting, but the reason I'm I'm bringing it up is because it involves Michigan again. So last week, if you recall, we talked about the frog, the tree frog that was found in spinach in Michigan. <laughs> this one involves a Michigan man who is suing the Olive Garden, alleging that he found a rat foot in his minestrone. Oh my, what is, what is up with he, Michigan? He felt a stabbing pain in his mouth that hooked his <laughs> hooked what it hooked his mouth it's it's alleged at this point yeah. because i think olive garden's probably pushing back and saying he didn't really it didn't really happen like maybe it was a plant or something like that but um i thought that that was interesting he's seeking damages of 25,000 for that's it 25,000 yeah for 
mental anguish and emotional distress. Twenty? You think a rat foot? I'd be suing. I'd be suing for two point five billion <laughs> if I had a rat foot in my soup. Oh, God. I don't even know what else to say about this. I, yeah. You know, it's a he said, she said thing because you know you think about it. You can get food from any place and stick a rat foot or. Uh, a frog or, or whatever in the food, and yeah. the the the, own, the establishment has no no way to defend themselves. That's why they carry insurance for mm -hmm. this exact reason. Ultimately, yeah. if the lawsuit is successful, it's going to be the insurance company. So I think the moral of the story there is maybe just make your own minestrone at home. That is right, Tara. Let's move on to today's topic. Let's start off by talking about some meals that a beginner or maybe a less experienced cook might be intimidated by. And I'm using myself as the example. I want to preface this by saying Tara is a much better cook than a beginner. Like, I don't consider her a beginner cook. I I, I think Tara's biggest weakness simply is that, and I think this is home cook weakness in general, which, you know, could be extended to me as my own, my weakness, is that you don't have as much experience with the high-end ingredients that high-end restaurants do. Like high-end restaurants will be getting a whole fish. They'll be breaking it mm -hmm. down. They'll be cutting it into different portions. They might be getting large cuts of meat where they also are breaking it down. They're just having more experience, they have more experience with things like that that a home cook doesn't doesn't have. Yeah, that's, that's accurate to and say. And it's less intimidating being in a restaurant. If you screw up a steak in a restaurant, nothing happens to you. Mm -hmm. You just put another steak on the grill. You know, maybe the manager gets, you know, sla slaps you on the butt or whatever, smacks you in the head and says, you know, that's the second steak that you ruined tonight, pal. You do it again, you're out of here. You know, well, mm -hmm. that's what they used to do 10 years ago. Now they now they definitely don't do that. But at home, when you get like a very expensive steak, I can see the intimidation factor. All right, Tara, go on. Yeah, no, I wanted to just take a moment and say that last week we talked about shrimp and how shrimp is something that's great for a beginner cook because it's not intimidating at all and it can be cooked quickly and it's relatively inexpensive. So if you screw up a shrimp or two, it's not gonna make too much of a difference. So for me, when I think of meals that intimidate me or meals that I am less likely to prepare, they involve a few different things. The first of which is an, a whole chicken. So I'm fine with making chicken thighs, or chicken breasts, but if you give me a whole chicken and I need to break it down, it's intimidating. And often, because I love your chicken and potatoes dish, that's one of my favorite weekday meals because it's comforting and it's just great. But when I make it, what do I do? What do what do I ask you to do? Well, you asked me to break it down. You've tried to do you've you have done it yourself though, the whole dish. I have, but I haven't broken down the chicken. I would just say simply with this, and this is this isn't a, a matter of money now because a whole chicken is is an inexpensive thing to buy, and it's you can make a whole meal for your family with a whole chicken and potatoes, the dish that Tara is describing for twelve dollars, and then you know if you have a family of four. You're like at $3 a person. Very inexpensive dish. The difficulty I've noticed that you have uh, is breaking down the chicken, of course, which can be remedied by buying pieces. Mm -hmm. And you could just do it also with just chicken thighs. Like okay. you could buy thighs and legs. But I think another issue potentially that home cooks would have, and maybe you, you've you had in the past too, is do you know what I'm talking about? What, what do you do after the pieces are broken down? that sometimes can make or break that dish. Not dry it off. Not dry it off enough, right? Mm-hmm. I think that was the major component of 
of it because I, I think you get the exact same results, albeit a little bit more expensive if you buy individual pieces. Mm-hmm. But no matter if you're breaking down a chicken or buying pieces, it's that drying off factor that I think throws off a lot of home cooks. Yeah. And that's actually something that's really easy to do. And that's not intimidating, but it's a step that's probably yeah often skipped because I know when I made it, after you had broken it down for me, you went back upstairs to edit or or whatever. And I was left to myself and I didn't dry off the pieces. So they kind of like, the chicken almost like steamed. It steams. And it wasn't yeah. good. I mean, it wasn't bad. We ate it, but it's, it wasn't like the way you made it. It's tough because so- what you're going to have to do if you do make this, you'll have to use about 30 pieces of paper towels. I, I know it sounds crazy, but and you might be thinking at that point, well, I don't want to waste 30 pieces of paper towels drying off my chicken. The chicken you buy in a store often, like especially when it comes in one of those plastic bags, it's wet. It might be in a tiny bit of solution. You can, you can read the fine print on the bag. But you got to really dry that sucker off. And you got to, when you think it's dry and you're letting it sit for a bit, it will continue to release more liquid. Now, it's more critical if you're trying to get a sear, if you're doing a different type of dish. Like when we do the chicken scarparello, I start with a sear. So I sear those pieces before I then continue to roast them with all the okay. you know the sausage, potatoes, cherry peppers. Yeah. But no matter what it is, you got to really dry it off. Now, there are a couple of solutions here. Uh, we have like a little kind of butcher place near us. And how do they sell their chickens, Tara? They sell them whole, but they're not in a solution. They're they're separate. Like they're, they're in the on, deli They're case, in the counter. And they're right. drained and they're super dry right. already. Right. And that was one of the best chickens that we've yeah. that we've made. Yeah. So if you can get, if you have access to chicken like that, you're going to have to, it'll take you just very la- a lot less drying. So that's that. That's about the chicken. So if I do want to break down a chicken myself and conquer my fear of breaking down a chicken, what would you recommend I do? Well, you can watch the video. The chicken and potatoes is where I actually did break it down. It's very easy to break down a chicken. You can't. Chicken have uh, very weak bones, so you can just feel with your hands. Now, I, I think part of what's intimidating here for a lot of home cooks is they don't like the idea of massaging like the raw chicken and like trying to, you know, you could pop the wing, you know, you find the joint, mm-hmm. then it's then once you pop it, then you know exactly where to cut between. Yeah. It's really as simple as that. You can watch a lot of videos that are done on YouTube by uh, professional butchers and they'll show you the anatomy of the chicken and exactly where to cut. When you start breaking down chickens initially, you're the only problem you're going to have is you're going to leave a little bit of the thigh meat. That's going to be the biggest problem. You're going to be able to easily detach after a couple tries, you're going to be able to easily remove the wing. You know, as I said, you're going to be able to be able, you're going to be able to cut that leg off very easily. Um, that also is a kind of could be a little bit tricky, but you could feel it there too, where the bone is. It's just going to be that cutting the thigh, where you kind of run your knife kind of around it, and then the thigh has kind of like a roundish shape. Mm-hmm. But there's so many good videos showing exactly how to do it. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. What's the next one? Next up on my food fears, and I just want to say here again, I'm basing this off of my fears and would I presume other cooks who are at my level of ability, what their fears might be. If you, the listener, has different fears, let us know and send us send us a message to podcast at sipandfeast.com. Let us know and we'll talk about them in a future episode. Yeah, we could have broken this down into just a chicken episode because there's, there's more to cover there with the chicken. Yeah, of course. So let us know. Um, my next food fear involves price because I don't want to ruin an expensive piece of meat. 
So I don't think I, in my whole life that I've ever cooked a steak or a rib roast or an expense and insert any expensive cut of meat there. I leave that to you. And it's because I'm afraid that if I spend, you know, $80 on a rib roast for a special family dinner, I'm going to screw it up and it's going to ruin everything. $80 is kind of low. It's probably going to, in reality, it'll probably be much more expensive than that because we typically will buy the rib roast at Costco and during the holidays, and again, everything has gone up because, you know, inflation is out of control. A year ago, the last time I did a rib roast for the holidays, I think it was $9.99 a pound. And they also, that's for the choice, I believe. They also had a, a prime that was $12.99 a pound. I would expect prices to be considerably higher for this year. So I get it how you might be worried about that $80, $100, or $150 roast. Yeah, like we're talking about this, and I'm actually feeling afraid that that if I have to cook this someday, that I'm going to screw it up. I think part of it is you don't have a backup roast, which you don't. You're not buying. Yeah. Why would you buy two roasts? You only you only want one roast for your, your family. Yeah. I would say simply get over it and do it. <laughs> and you'll, no, I, I mean, I know you're laughing. You're laughing. But, you know, listen, have a chicken as a backup, I guess. But a rib roast is one of the easiest things you can make. You know, you might be listening right now and going, Jim, what are you talking about? I did a roast 10 years ago and it, and it came out horribly. Well, do it again. All you need to do a successful rib roast is a digital thermometer, you know, a plug-in one, one that goes in to the meat and is oven safe. So you leave it in the whole time. You can set it for whatever temperature you want. It doesn't even matter the way you cook your rib roast. You can cook it where you can do a high level at first, you could do 450, 475, where you're browning the top, then you can lower it down to like 325 and let it continue to cook until it hits your target temp, which will probably, for a rib roast, I suggest you go about 125 or maybe even 120 Fahrenheit, you know, because when you pull it out, it's going to raise a little bit and everybody likes it on the rare side. Not everybody. For the most part, a lot of people do. You can do it that way, or you can just do the trick where you just blast it for 30 minutes, then you turn the oven off and you just leave it in the oven and it the oven, you know, the, it's going to retain a ton of heat for hours. It will continue to cook your roast. It doesn't matter how you cook your roast. The only thing that matters is that you put that thermometer in, in the correct spot. So like if you have a roast and it'll, you know, you want your bones typically on the bottom. You could, if you get it at a butcher, you could have the butcher remove, remove them. And then you could have them tie them back. Tying them back is for, first of all, the bone is delicious. You, each person could get a bone, but also it'll help the meat stay a little juicier. Or you can just buy the roast where the bones are not detached. When you put your thermometer in, you want to get it straight in the middle of the meat without touching the bone. It's as simple as that. And you put it in your oven and you cook it either way that we described. Honestly, Tyler, I think I think when we do the roast this year, I think you're you're on the roast duty. Mm -hmm. I'll do the potatoes. <laughs> you're making me nervous. No, there's no reason to be nervous. There is no reason to be nervous. Yeah. Why am and I I I I don't know. I'm just so afraid. I'm also afraid to make a steak. Like if we were going to get, let's say we pick up a prime steak for a special occasion and we're going to make it for the four of us, I would definitely leave that to you. I would feel too scared to do that. I get it. Uh, I've probably cooked hundreds of steaks in my life mm -hmm. and I'm trying to rewind back to when I cooked my first steak and I think I was nervous and I trying to put my, you know, my mindset back in how, how you would feel now. I think there will be a little bit of a learning curve on that. A steak will be a little bit more difficult than doing a rib roast. You can still use one of those thermometers that I said, 
or you can use an instant read. This is one that is kind of like just the shape of a pen, very small, and then you can just stick it in there. Mm -hmm. And the more you do stake, you'll have a general reference of how long it's going to take. So if you have a two-inch thick porterhouse or a tomahawk, it's going to take more than four minutes per side. And you can't make your flame or your heat source, whether it's a gas grill or a charcoal, you can't make it incinerating levels because all that's going to do is it's going to burn the outside of your steak, but the inside of your steak is still going to stay raw. So for something like that with a thick one, you'd probably do an indirect. You'd probably do a initial sear and then you would move it, move your steak off the heat to mm -hmm. a kind of like a cooler spot, close the lid, do an oven effect. You can then put your thermometer in, the one that we used in the rib roast oven, or you can just maybe eight minutes later, check it with your instant read. It's not that difficult to do. Would you say, because I'm going to go into the whole grilling thing next as being something that scares me, um, would you say that for a first timer making the steak that maybe grilling isn't the best way to go and maybe it's a reverse sear? Like inside? Yeah, reverse sear, a reverse sear is extremely easy and very much uh, foolproof. How would you do that? So for a reverse sear, it doesn't matter what you put your oven on. I would just keep it low. You know, if you put it at 250 or 275, it'll cook a little bit quicker. All you're doing with a reverse sear is you're cooking it almost to the point where it's done. Say you like your steak at 125 or 130 degrees. You can do in the oven with your thermometer again, cook it to about 105 to 110. At that point, you remove it and then you can let it sit. You could even put that thing in the fridge overnight and then you can take it out the next day let it get to room temperature mm -hmm. and then sear it in the pan. You're only searing for about a minute, minute and 20 seconds per side. And that's going to bring it up to that extra 10 or 15 degrees okay. to get it to your proper 130 degrees So you're steak. putting it in the oven first, then you're searing it. That's right. That's how, that's what the reverse okay. sear is. Okay. You, know, you could do it. You could also do a sous vide, you know, that people do, which we don't own. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, you know, we don't own a lot of gadgets. So that's another gadget that we don't have here. But a sous vide is like something that it goes in a bag and it's in liquid and then it cooks mm. it very slow. It gives an ultra tender uh, cut of meat. Uh, the only thing with a sous vide is a lot of times it's a little, you got to dry it off a little bit better to get a better sear. Okay. So- I mean, if you have one of those, you probably already know how to do it, though, right? That's the thing that 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 mm -hmm. I that I would I would think. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I would think like somebody who owns a sous vide, like they they probably are pretty, they're fairly accomplished in the kitchen, right? Yeah. Well, the, that just even the word sous vide sounds. Yeah, very is it sous vide or sous vide? It's V I D E. I don't know. You took French. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds fancy. It sounds it sounds very fancy. I mean, that should go with your Pasta Queen uh, two thousand dollar pot set. <laughs> All right. I love joking about the Pasta Queen. Sorry, she made a video about me with her <laughs> dumbass brother. So I have to I have to do it. And uh, <laughs> she, I, I can't imagine you're you're a fan of the two of us too much. I know there might be a tiny bit of overlap, but you know I'm constantly singing the virtues of having inexpensive pots and pans. And meanwhile, she's she's hawking $500 a piece pans. It, yeah. I, I don't know if that kind of goes well, together. I think what she says is that they're meant to be, they're like timeless family heirloom pieces that you'll pass down. All you're doing is passing down a massive inheritance to her kids and building up her retirement account. That's what you're doing. <laughs> That's the heirloom. Okay, so <laughs> let's segue into my next fear which is grilling. So I've grilled things before. When I say things, I mean like chicken. <laughs> I've grilled things. <laughs> I grilled things. Um, I've 
I've made chicken before. I'm not necessarily afraid to use a gas grill. I'm okay with gas, but I am afraid to use charcoal. I don't know why. I'm not afraid. I mean, I'm I'm afraid to use the chimney starter. I don't know why I'm afraid to do this. You should be afraid of gas, not the chimney starter. The chimney starter is not going to blow up. Now, that doesn't I'm not trying to get you worried about using your gas grill either, but you know, you do have to take more precautions with a gas grill. Got to make sure that your, you know, your source, your supply line is tight on mm-hmm. both sides. The way you can check that is by spraying soapy water on it. You know, you do the same thing in your house when you're hooking up your gas oven. That's what you do when you install it. And if you see little bubbles there, that means that it's there's a little bit of a leak. Okay. Okay. But as far as being scared of charcoal, it's not I the get- charcoal necessarily that scares me. It's cooking on it that scares me. But yeah, the getting the chimney starter going also scares me. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the chimney starter is really it's a really uh, simple tool. It's just a chimney. It looks like a little kind of like a canister with a handle. And all you do is you can put paper towels underneath it, some crumbled up newspaper. Then you pour your coal in and there'll be a stop point. So the paper will be underneath it. There'll be a stop point and your coal will be in there. One chimney and chimneys are basically they're kind of all standardized. If you go to Home Depot, you'll see a few different ones made by Weber and whatnot. They will all hold enough pretty much for that standard 18 inch Weber charcoal grill. You know, you could use more coal if you like. You could throw more in there, and then when you get your hot chimney, basically you light the starter source, which is the newspaper or paper towels. It'll take about 15 minutes. Once the top of that coal starts to gray off a little bit, that's when you dump your chimney into your grill. And you got to start working quick when you're dealing with charcoal, or before you know it, you'll have no heat. That's the thing. Uh, Is one better than the other? I would say for most cooks, gas gas grills are are far better. Okay. Far better. Because you can control it? Charcoal takes longer. That's the thing. I mean, yeah, you can use a flamethrower and, and get your coal lit in a couple minutes, but I, I don't picture you using one of those to start your coal. I don't even know what a flamethrower is. It's kind of like they make them now. They make specific ones for coal. It's just a much bigger torch, like a torch that you would use when you're soldering a copper pipe for plumbing. You just would be, it's just larger. So they even yeah. have like weed torches that people use. So that weed torch where you can like kind of blast your weeds with flame, you can use that to start your coal. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I do it the old fashioned way and I just- I, I just light, light the paper underneath. So as far as cooking on the grill, because yesterday, the reason why I got to thinking about this one is because yesterday, I it was a beautiful day. I really wanted grilled chicken. You couldn't do it. You were in the middle of editing the Riso Alforno video, and we wound up just ordering food. If I would have just conquered my, my fear of the grill and figured out how to get the chimney starter going and... I could have had the grilled chicken that I wanted. So do you have any tips for someone like me who wants to use the grill? Uh, by the way, watch the Resale Al Forno video. It's a great video. James made his return. So, mm-hmm. um, And I didn't curse in that video. A lot of people were saying that I cursed. I'll say this now here. I did not curse. It was just me combining two points in time together, and it sounded like right. it. You said I you were talking about the anchovy dissolving in the pan. You're like, see, I can't even find. You said I can't even find it, and then you cut with the video to see it, and it sounded like I can't even effing see it. Yeah, but that's not. That's not, not. Not at that point. Yeah, no, I didn't curse. All right, so what, we were talking about your fear. Yeah. So as far as grilling, I wanted the grilled chicken yesterday. I didn't have it because I was afraid to use the grill. 
what tips do you have for someone who just wants to make like grilled chicken thighs? Okay. Well, if you have a gas grill, then it's, there's no fear as long, you know, make sure your lines are tight. And obviously everybody's got a gas grill and there's not too many accidents every year. I, I think if we had a gas grill, you probably would use it. If charcoal, it's really a simple, the charcoal though, you can, you do your chimney, you get it going, you light, then you go back inside. That's when you would open up the chicken, start drying it off, mm -hmm. seasoning it if you want and getting it ready to go on the grill. It, but once it's on the grill, what do I do? Because you can't control the charcoal. Okay. You can't control the heat. I misunderstood yeah. uh, Misunderstood the question. Okay, so for the charcoal, I always recommend, provided you're using a fairly large grill, I, I, I believe we have a 20-inch or an 18-inch Weber, which is pretty much standard charcoal grill you're gonna see. I always make a cool spot. So I would always make two-thirds of, when you dump your coal in, two-thirds of the area is where the coal is. The last third of the area, there is no coal. So in case, you, when you put your chicken down, say your coals are a little hot and it starts burning, you can grab your chicken quickly and push it all to the cool side. Okay. And then you won't, you know, with a chicken thigh, chicken thighs have a decent amount of fat. So say you didn't trim them at all, you might get a little bit of flare up in the beginning when you put them on. Mm -hmm. You'll definitely get flare up with like a steak if you didn't trim it. And you don't really want to trim a steak that much. So say you're doing a tomahawk, you're going to get some flare up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Tomahawk's pretty easy though because you could just like use the gloves and grab the, grab the, the bone? bone itself and just yeah. you know, it's it's really easy. It's like a built-in pot handle. If you've never done a tomahawk, I recommend you do it. I mean, they're they're not cheap, but you get one big tomahawk, it's enough for a family of four. Put that on a list of things that scare me too. <laughs> it's nothing to be scared of. It's not it's not like you bought fifteen a fifteen hundred dollar truffle. Oh. You know? That I probably wouldn't be afraid to do because it's just you're shaving a truffle on top of some risotto or some pasta. My fear would be that the truffle wasn't good and they ripped me and they ripped oh. me off. Yeah, that would be scary. That's my fear. Yeah. And and we have had experiences lately with uh we bought prime steak. This was a few months ago from Costco, and it was all bad. Yeah. And I'm a huge proponent of Costco. I love Costco. I don't think there's a better place for you to shop for your family. We're going to do a whole episode on it. We're probably going to do multiple episodes on Costco. In, in case you don't realize here, like we're talking to you like you have a family like we do. Now, I know you might be a little bit older than us or you might be a little bit younger, but we, we don't cater to like uh, the single Brooklyn hipster, all right? Like I, there's enough YouTubers doing that type of content. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying like, so I make big meals and yeah, we're talking about like cooking steaks and how to save money and everything, so. One of my other fears that I did conquer that I thought maybe I could share my experience with was making cheesecake. Mm. So throughout my life, I was always afraid to make cheesecake. I was like, oh, I have to buy a springform pan. I have to put it in a water bath. I have to do this. I have to do that. It always was something that I was afraid of. Yeah. And then we came to the point where, you know, for the Sip and Feast website, with the exception of very few, all of the dessert recipes are my recipes. That's recipes right. that I've created. So when it came time for us to make the ricotta cheesecake, I knew I had to really get it perfect. So I think I wound up making the cheesecake at least six times before we finally nailed it and got it to not crack and made sure the taste and consistency and everything was perfect with it. I think in order to do that, I had to first put my fears aside. And one of the ways I did that was to realize I am gonna make 
mistakes here. I have to be okay with it. I have to be okay with going out to the store and getting more ingredients. Um, and I really wanted to learn from those mistakes so that I could put forth the best possible recipe for our followers. Yeah. And the first cheesecake I made, it tasted great, but it was cracked in the center. Yeah. And I was upset about that. We didn't want to put yeah. those pictures up on the website. Yeah, I was the one who right away. Yeah. I, I'm harsher than Tara is. I, I'm a perfectionist. So I remember this. I think you wanted to put it up. And I did. I said, no, what? I said, no. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I don't think at first I thought it wasn't a big deal to have the crack because so many of the other recipes that I saw had cracks in them. I'm not a stickler really for stuff like that because the taste is the same. And so, and I'm just letting you know if you do make it and you do get a crack, though I don't think you will get a crack if you follow our directions, but I'm normally not a stickler, but for something like a cheesecake, I worked in a bakery. So the first place I worked at, one of the first places, it was a bakery deli, but they were, they were a huge bakery. And I, I know I've told you this before. They did a ton of cheesecake, a ton. They had an actual case uh, kind of like a round cylinder thing, right? When you walked into the place, that was just all their cheesecakes. And then they also had other other displays of their cheesecakes. And, um, you know, when you run a bakery, you do not you do not have cracks in your cheesecake. Mm -hmm. Like you Jun can. Junior's, which is the famous one in Brooklyn that everybody, you know, everybody in, in New York knows Junior's and they always like, I got you a Junior's cheesecake, you know? Uh, <laughs> like, you know, it's like $98, $98 now probably. They're not putting a crack in that. So I, I felt that, again, because our audience is predominantly New York, and I know you might not be from New York. I, I just, I, I, I couldn't in good conscience, you know, good conscience, like, yeah. do that. I agree. And I'm really glad now, in, with hindsight, that we didn't put that up. And from that point, we went through a few different trials of making the cheesecake. We then started to use a water bath for it because the first one didn't. And that's how they did it at the bakery yeah. I, I worked yeah. at. And I also... I, I was like, you know what? I'm not an expert here. The taste was perfect. The taste was nailed. But I really needed to figure out the technique. And I did, I read a lot about it. I watched a few different videos. That's one thing I would say is that if, if you're afraid to do something in the kitchen, consult the expert. In my opinion, the number one expert on anything baked. So if you want to make a dessert, it's Sally's Baking Addiction. I've been looking at her website since she started and I read her tips and her tricks and used that to kind of get myself through making yeah. the Italian cheesecake. I don't even know if she has an Italian cheesecake recipe on her website. I think I use it was like her regular cheesecake recipe that I was using the tips for. She is um She's, I mean, you probably know this site. I, I think it would be rare for you to be listening to this podcast and not know who, who she is. Uh, she's extremely prolific. There's probably over 2,000 recipes on that site, and they're all dessert. Now, I think she's branched off a little bit into some food now. She does some food, but yeah. I mean, her, she's, she's baking. She's, she's like one of the originals, and she, she probably has the largest website by page views that's not part of a massive company now. There's a couple others that are, are huge like her, like uh, Natasha's Kitchen comes to mind too. That's not dessert though. Anyway, I digress. And I do agree with Tara that uh, that Sally's is 
is a great source. Go yeah. to the good sources. Like she's, I, I, you know, I don't know her. I've never spoken to her. I, I would think she has a similar, probably, mindset that I do. She probably does not want to put up no. anything that is not perfect. Yes. And I, and I respect that a lot. I would totally agree because I I can't even tell you how many of her recipes that I've I've made throughout the years. And when I actually sit there and I follow and I read her tips and everything, it comes out perfect. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like we we use her as a reference often for not the recipe per se, but how she goes about it. Like, you know, her her, her posts are dense. So maybe if I had to do one criticism of her posts, it would be that. And the world is moving away from dense content. Google itself is trying to put up stuff that's old, like the exact opposite. Um, so she puts a ton of information in those posts. But yeah, I don't think any any of it is is like superfluous. I think it's all relevant to mm -hmm. to 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 making the best possible recipe that you can. It is, and it definitely helped me get over my fear of making cheesecake. Yeah. So I would say that's another thing. If if you want to conquer cooking fears, definitely find out who the expert is in that area. Read or watch their video, and know that they're probably providing you with instructions that will get you through it and yeah. allow you to be successful. Another thing about her site and just listen, I, I I will there is a caveat here. This isn't this isn't 100% tr true for everything. But her site has enough of views that it gets and you know, she gets like 20 million page views a month. It's just some astronomical level and that's a big site. That's a big big site. So she gets a lot of comments and a lot of people that try it. So you can see a lot of feedback there. So you, I think you can go out on a limb and trust a lot of it. Trust is only works as if it, it can't be all five stars. That's statistically impossible. I don't, I haven't really looked through the comments there and no, but I will say that you could probably go from her site. You could probably really trust those. Those were kind of my food fears that I thought we could talk about. I know I probably missed others that, that other folks may have. Again, if you have food fears that you need help conquering, let us know, send yeah. us a message. Um, yeah, we could do an individual one. I, I mean, we didn't even touch really on the seafood and stuff. So I I, I assume that might be something that, uh, you know, maybe you're just like fearful of with seafood, especially, oh, it's it's not fresh. Like, yeah, I don't that, know that, that if I can trust a person, yeah. stuff, something like that. But we'll save that for another episode. Right now, we're going to talk about what is coming up this week. Yeah, so coming up this week, I mean, we're not sure yet what video we're going to put out. We have a few options. We've got the salmon oregonata, the stuffed peppers, and the tomato, cherry tomato crostini. Those are all filmed already, so we're just deciding what's what's going to go up. That's right, so Meaning I have to, come. to I have to edit them or my uh, editor will have to edit them. Yes. And I haven't heard from him in a week, so I'm a little worried. <laughs> <laughs> hope, he, hope he's all right. <laughs> so more to come there. As far as the the blog, what will be coming up? We've got a few. We've got miso eggplant, which is an actual, which is an update of one of our earliest. It was our first recipes. recipe. I it was the first. It was the first recipe on the site. Okay. So it's it, I made it completely different now. Yeah. By the time you're listening to this, it will be up. Okay. I think. Okay, and that's like a Nobu style. Yeah. Miso eggplant. Yeah. And then we'll also have pumpkin bread mm. in time for pumpkin season. That pumpkin bread is good. Yes. 
and Italian fried peppers, yeah, which yeah, are so this, delicious. Yeah, and this is an old school one. So I used uh, a mixture of peppers, but typically people will just, you know, you could do all Cubanellas, which will be often labeled Italian frying peppers if you live in New York or New Jersey. And um, you can also do long hots too, which are really nice. I kind of I kind of like just all the long hots. I love them, how they're like, you could grab them and just bite them. And, and shishitos are great too, which are not obviously not an Italian pepper. Mm-hmm. They're a Japanese pepper, I believe. So that's it. That's what's coming up. Let's go into the questions. Okay. So- this- And I don't know these questions, just so you know. I don't know them. <laughs> So this first question, and I'm laughing because when it's from Mark, when Mark sent this email to me, I literally laughed out loud because it's so funny and such a good suggestion. (laughs) So have you ever heard of the game Kiss, Marry, or Kill? No, I haven't. Okay. So you're basically given three names and you have to assign whether you would kiss them, marry them, or kill them. I love this game. Mark, <laughs> Mark wants you to play this game with the following items. Okay. Dried basil, Gordon Ramsay. Wait, wait, do them one at a time. Let's just do them one <laughs> no, at no, a time. No, 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 because you have to say, um, oh. you have to hear all three. Oh, okay. Got and it. then you have to oh, figure okay, got out. Oh, okay, got it, got it. So dried basil, Gordon Ramsay, and the instant pod. So which would you kiss? Oh my God, this is impossible, Mark. <laughs> which would you kiss? Which would you marry? And which would you kill? This is impossible. <laughs> all right. I, I I can't kill all of them? <laughs> all right. So Gordon Ramsay, I'm going to have to marry, which is, <laughs> you know, um, dried basil, I'm, I'm going to have to kill. I knew it. I and knew it, that. What was the other? What's the other one? Uh, like what's Kiss. The, I'm going to have to kiss the Instapot, though I think the Instapot is just, it's not a good tool for most people, okay? I mean, it's a good tool for, like, beans or rice. It's just, it's not, you don't make your dinner in that. You don't, you use it to help you make your dinner, but you don't grab your dinner from it. So, um, but yeah, dried basil, oh, that's got to be way, that's got to be below the Instapot. Yeah. And Gordon, you don't look so bad. <laughs> If anybody has other suggestions for this game, let we us know. We should do this every week. Because honestly, <laughs> I really I really want to know what you would do with Guy Fieri. But I have to wait till I have other suggestions Guy, to come in. Don't answer it. Don't answer it. I want it. I want uh, I want our I think listeners. Guy Fieri's awesome. I mean, he's like he's he's America. That guy is America. That's what just this doesn't happen in other countries. It doesn't, it, it, or so very few. So you'd marry, you'd marry Guy Fieri? I'm saying Guy Fieri, like, what is he supposed to do? Tell the, the people that wanted it at the Food Network who were like, hey man, we're going to make you like a huge star. What was he supposed to be like? Ah, no, I'm just going to just, <laughs> I'm just going to stay here at, you know, hotel management, you know, and, 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 and I'm fine. Like, see you later. No, he, he did what I would have done and you would have done. Okay. And you would have done too, right? Yeah. So yeah, no. <laughs> I, like, I, of course. You are hard on him, though. It's not Guy Fieri. He's not the problem. It's the executives there. Yeah, that they're the ones who changed everything. Yeah, Guy Fieri wasn't like, hey, I'm. He didn't go in there and like shoot up the boardroom and took over took over the network. He was just. <laughs> he was. They just said like, hey, we got this show. Uh, diners 
drive-ins and dives and like we think it's going to be good and now it's 68 seasons later and <laughs> it's good for him i i like that show too we we've, we've spoke about that i mean it's it it keeps you entertained i my problem was like that they have five hours of it you mm-hmm. know on per day yeah i mean if, but they of course they do there's 68 seasons yeah yeah all right next question is from robert is there a city you have visited that surprised you with how good the food is and was there a particular dish from that visit that you tried and would recommend i visited a lot of cities but i haven't like when i visited them so i visited london with my friends who the last thing they were interested in was going to restaurants i actually cut that trip short and took a flight home myself that's how much how much fun i was having there then with those same friends, I earlier years earlier, I went to New Orleans and we were really young. That was for Mardi Gras. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, food is not like what's on everybody's mind. <laughs> all right? It's just not, you know. But <laughs> but um, I would love to go back to New Orleans with you, Tara, for Jazz Fest. Yeah, that would be fun. But you you did have good food in New Orleans. I I did, and that's that's the city I'm going to say. So uh, everything was everything I had there was was really good. Uh, we didn't go to like Command- Commander's Palace, which is the restaurant that Paul Paul Prudhomme and uh, Emeril both were like the head chef at. We were in the French Quarter, and a lot of the food I ate was like in styrofoam bowls and styrofoam uh, cups and trays, and but it was all good. So I got to try gumbo a few times. I had a bunch of po' boys. I had uh, etouffee. I had uh, fried alligator. I had tons of crawfish. I love crawfish. Something so great about like the, having that whole tray of crawfish in front of you, and it looks like so big this this crawfish, and it's just a little tiny piece mm-hmm. of meat in there. And then you know you suck the juice out of the heads, and it's like in like the spice, you know, the Cajun spice uh, oysters. You know, it, New Orleans is a great food city. I've never been, so I'm looking forward to going there someday. That's on my bucket list. But see, I, I want to go with you, but I can't. Now we can't leave because the kids. We can't leave the kids in our house alone. You remember what happens when your parents would go away when, when you when you were in that that age. So, I um I guess I have to wait for my kids to be in college or out of the house, and then then we can start going away on those trips. So anyway, yeah, I really like the food in New Orleans, and I um want to go back there again at some point. That's a bucket list item for me. I'd really like to yeah, go back. Yeah, and London has great food too. But th- th- when I went there, at the point I went there was in, I was in my early 20s. This was after 9-11. I believe it was after 9-11. Yeah, it was. Because this is when it was like, right when they started instituting all those flight rules and mm-hmm. everything. And so I was probably 23 around there. And it's still, I guess, a little too young for food, especially with the, you know the people I went yeah. with. Oh, I remember you telling me you wanted to go to Jamie Oliver's restaurant and nobody wanted to go with you. And hey, you know, look, a lot of the times the people we're friends with when we're young are because those are the people that were around us. Yeah, it's like when you go to high school, it's not like you get to pick. You just they're this the it's people geography. That are there. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to ask you to expand on this question because. You know, Robert's question was, is there a city that you visit that surprised you? You were, So 
but you were surprised that New Orleans had good no, food? No, no, there's nothing surprising there. I knew New Orleans. New Orleans is a is a yeah. mecca for food. It's uh, amazing food. Can you think of a city you've been to that you were surprised by? I mean, I've had one-off good meals. Like we did the trip from Minnesota to New York about three times. I think we drove and yeah, maybe more if you count. Yeah, the there and back. And you know, you would have to stop because it was it's twelve hundred miles. But when you hit New York, it's not. The mileage doesn't matter anymore. You could be stuck for seven hours trying to get through the city. So that w- you always would have to stop for that reason. Also, driving through there when you drove through Chicago, you can like skirt around it, but that would that would cause problems too. So we would always stop. I think in like Ohio, maybe Toledo comes to mind, and we mm-hmm. had like a really we had a really good meal in this. Um, I think it was like a Turkish place. It was, it was Lebanese. Lebanese. It was. It was. Like, it was a, like really good. I believe there's a large Lebanese population in Toledo. Well, there and, you go. And I think Danny Thomas, who was Lebanese, you know Danny Thomas. The he was from uh, that show in the fifties. No, I don't know who you're talking about. Marlo Thomas's father. No, I have no what idea. The? If you're from Toledo, you know, listening to this, but it was it was a good place. And uh, I think it was no alcohol served there, I, I believe, right? Which is it was kind of like a like a diner ish yeah, type place, but, but they the had food ev- was so good, everything there, like that you would lo- want. And then we went to this really good place, I believe, in Indiana. Um, was it what, what town was that? What city was that? I believe that was Valparaiso, Indiana, and it was a burger place that that was really good. Yeah, Valparaiso. So, but yeah, I mean. I'm not surprised by New Orleans being good. And yeah. I know London has amazing food when I get back there. Mm-hmm. That's right. I had a great steak in uh, Florida in Disney World at Shula's. <laughs> yes. Very good. But all those steakhouses are the same. Yeah. The corporate steakhouses, they're in every, they, they are truly in every city. Yeah, they are. Yeah. But yeah, I remember Shula's being really good. The Danny Thomas show that I was trying to think of, it's called The Danny Thomas Show. <laughs> well, on that note... <laughs> Leave your questions, podcast at sippinfeast.com. We will see you next time.